When I was a 21-year-old in my very first quarter as a seminary student, sitting in Greek class, which stretched from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, there was this girl who sat on the other side of the classroom, the only other student in the class who had come straight from undergraduate studies to Fuller. Some of you may know that girl. (laughs) Some of you also know that the story of how we got from there to co-pastoring Pomona Valley Church is a bit more complicated than the rom-com meet-cute I just set up. That's a different story for a different sermon, maybe. Like I said, Greek went from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., which means we had several breaks along the way, including one hour-long break from 10 to 11. One morning, we were looking at the intricacies of Greek syntax, riveting stuff, and how in Greek, sometimes sentences are strung together using participles in ways that we don't do in English. And our professor used the example of Ephesians 5, pointing out that at verse 22 where wives are told to submit to their husbands, several translations make not just a sentence break, but a paragraph break with a new section heading and everything, implying that Paul is starting in on a new topic. But in the actual Greek, there isn't even a verb in verse 22. It literally just says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Because this isn't a new paragraph. It's part of the previous one, which in some translations ends with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, the last actual verb in the paragraph is back in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And then all that comes after is Paul giving examples of what being filled with the Spirit looks like, including submitting to one another, which includes wives submitting to their husbands, but also includes husbands submitting to their wives, even if Paul doesn't explicitly say it, that's the one another part. But Greek syntax is not our topic today. Back to the girl from across the room. Meredith and I had become friends at this point, and during the break, after this discussion in class, we began talking about women in the church and in the family. I didn't come from a particularly conservative background church-wise, but the idea of men being the leaders was still kind of in the water, and I had the typically privileged male perspective of, I don't know, doesn't the Bible say something about men leading, but I've never really thought about it because it doesn't impact me. I get to do what I want either way. And so I listened as Meredith laid out her perspective on why women should lead and teach and all the rest. At this point, it was time to go back to class. And I remember sitting there, staring out the window through the next hour, not picking up much about Greek syntax, thinking it all through. And when the next break came, I went up to Meredith in that little outdoor hallway on the third floor overlooking the shady courtyard of the main Fuller building and said, okay. And she was like, okay, what? (laughs) And I said, I agree with you now. And I don't think she really knew what to say to that because I don't know that she'd ever changed anybody's mind on the issue before. This has since then become a central issue for Meredith and I, of course, dictating first which churches we were willing to work at and then what the church we were starting was going to be like. It's a core issue for us as a church that women and men are fully equal with no restrictions of any kind based on their gender. In the years since, LGBTQ inclusion has gotten added to that list for us. The most important thing for us is that we are following Jesus into the world together, but the way in which we do that is going to be inclusive across gender identity and sexual orientation lines. It's a non-negotiable for us. And as those of you who have been in a similar place perspective-wise know, this creates some issues in certain church spaces. There are any number of Christians who vehemently disagree with us on these values and who aren't shy about telling us, 
In fact, there are quite a few who are clearly acting in bad faith, who have no intention of engaging in a conversation about the issue or thinking through other perspectives or even of showing respect to the people who disagree with them. Nope, you're leading people to hell so we can be as nasty to you as we want to be. If you've ever wondered at the contempt I show for John Piper, Wayne Grudem, and Mark Driscoll, by the way, it's because they fall in this camp of being cruel and vindictive towards those who disagree with them. But over the years, Meredith and I have gotten to the place where we don't really want to deal with those sorts of people anymore. We don't want to debate them or hear how we don't take the Bible seriously. We just want to get on with the following Jesus part, along with others who want to do that too. We're tired of being condemned by them. And we know too many people who have been deeply hurt by being condemned by them. And sometimes that leaks out, if I'm honest, as I just alluded to, in us despising them. Which makes the passage we're looking at in Romans a really fascinating one, even if it doesn't seem like it on the surface. In Romans 14 and 15, there's an extended discussion of two issues that I'd venture to guess are not ones many of us have had disputes about within the church. Eating meat and celebrating holidays. So this is Romans 14, 1 to 6, but again, the discussion kind of goes throughout this chapter and into the next one, but we're not going to read the whole of it. We're just going to read the first six verses and go from there. Welcome someone who is weak in faith, but not in order to have disputes on difficult points. One person believes it's all right to eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats should not despise the one who does not. And the one who does not should not condemn the one who does, because God has welcomed them. Who do you think you are to judge someone else's servants? They stand or fall before their own master, and stand they will, because the master can make them stand. One person reckons one day more important than another. Someone else regards all days as equally important. Each person must make up their own mind. The one who celebrates the day does so in honor of the Lord, just as the one who eats does so in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. The one who does not eat, too, is abstaining in honor of the Lord, and likewise gives thanks to God. We need to unpack this a little bit so as to see how the issues Paul is talking about map onto the issues I introduced to open the sermon. Paul is not talking about a lifestyle choice to be vegetarian or to celebrate Halloween. He is talking about the core of Jewish identity. Again, the issue is the eating of meat. Why is this an issue? Because in a city like Rome, the majority of the meat on the market had been dedicated to the gods in one way or another, whether in a major temple or in some smaller shrine. And virtually all of the meat on offer had not been killed according to kosher food laws. This is, in other words, largely a Jew-Gentile issue. Although there could be some Gentiles, I suppose, coming out of the pagan world who were sensitive to the eating of meat sacrificed to idols because it reminded them of their old life or something like that. Paul recognizes that not all Jews were going to be comfortable eating non-kosher meat, let alone meat that was tied to pagan gods and goddesses, and they might just eat vegetables to make it easier. And again, we shouldn't hear this as some sort of indifferent lifestyle choice. These would be people who felt it was core to their identity, core to who they were to be Jewish, and that keeping kosher was an essential piece of that identity. These would be people who would potentially refuse to eat with others who weren't keeping kosher and who might cut off relationships, even maybe especially familial relationships with those who ate meat. Paul and other Christian Jews, in contrast, have come to the conclusion that the Old Testament food laws are no longer necessary to follow. 
and in fact that doing so would draw an unnecessary dividing line between Jewish and Gentile Christians because of the dynamics I just mentioned. In Galatians 2, Peter, who had been in the habit of eating with Gentiles, stops doing so under the influence of some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. And Paul talks about opposing him to his face for the damage he is doing to the gospel, confronting Peter with the reality that his behavior doesn't line up with the truth of Jesus's death and resurrection and the Jew and Gentile all together family that Jesus is drawing to himself. And that Peter as an apostle ought to know better and so needs to change his ways. But here, Paul does something different. He recognizes that there might be others who haven't reached this level of mature reflection yet. Not everyone is an apostle after all. And some Jewish Christians don't understand fully enough the implications that Peter did understand, or should have at least. And love in this case would mean finding a way to not judge one another even when one side is so seriously in the wrong. He says more specifically that the one who is more mature and eats meat, knowing that it is no longer an issue, is not to despise the non-eater. Think of the eye roll that accompanies the, oh my gosh, can you believe this person is so hung up on this thing that isn't even important? Or of how I feel about John Piper, maybe. (laughs) And then the vegetarian is not to condemn the meat eater. From their perspective, after all, the one eating meat is disobeying God's clear commands. And so their perspective is one of condemnation. Many of us have been on the receiving end of something like that. Both perspectives, however, the despising and the condemning, ignore the reality, as Paul explained at length in chapters 3 to 5 of Romans, that God has already welcomed both and will make them stand, which is a way of referring to the future resurrection. If both are welcomed by God and will be welcomed into the resurrection, then who are they to judge one another rather than welcome one another, as God has done for them? Some of you may be thinking (laughs) at this point of the time in the letter to the Corinthians when Paul says something seemingly different. This is 1 Corinthians 5.12. For what have I to do with judging those outside, meaning outside the church? Are you not judges of those who are inside? So which is it, Paul? Are we supposed to judge those inside the church or not? Well, there's a famous Christian saying that I believe comes to us from Augustine that is meant to sum this question up. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, meaning love. But love doesn't rhyme with unity in English, so the saying has usually kept the old rhyming Latin root. It'd be nice if Paul had done a more thorough job of defining for us precisely which things are essentials and which are non-essentials, but alas. Apparently, the principle of one family encompassing both Jew and Gentile is an essential that must be followed. But the seemingly related question of whether one eats meat or follows kosher food laws, that's a non-essential. Paul then adds another layer to this, introducing the disagreement over holidays, whether some days are more special than others. Since this is a continuation of this same argument that started with kosher food laws, it seems most likely that Paul is referring to those who still follow the Jewish festival calendar and keep Sabbath. But it's also possible he's referring to the various pagan festivals that would happen in the capital city of Rome. Either way, the point's the same. This also is a non-essential, one that people might disagree over. As long as in both cases people are trying to honor God with their decision, the result of the decision 
is not something worth despising and condemning over. The unity of the one family of God is more important. Fair enough. This all sounds good to us today, in theory, when we're talking about food laws and holidays that we don't care about. It gets a little too close for comfort when we recognize that, again, this discussion maps exactly onto the values we hold as a church to include women and LGBTQ Christians fully. I find myself wanting to say to Paul, but wait, there is only one right answer to these questions. The implications of the gospel require us to include in the ways that Pomona Valley Church is committed to. That is the right answer of how to live in light of who Jesus is, to fully include all genders and sexual orientations. To which this passage would say, yes, there was only one right answer for Paul about food and holidays. They didn't matter anymore. And to celebrate the holidays and to eat kosher drew unnecessary and unacceptable dividing lines within the church. And he recognized that that was the strong position, the one that some were not mature enough to see. The weak in faith, meaning not that they didn't believe hard enough and needed to grit their teeth and believe better, but that they had yet to fully see the implications of the gospel. They were still working out what it meant to follow this Jesus, that the weak were still on their way to the strong position. Most of us have made exactly that journey from a weaker to a stronger position on the issues of LGBTQ inclusion. We did not fully understand the implications of the good news about Jesus at one point in our lives, and now we do, at least in that area. (laughs) I'm sure there's other places that our faith remains weak in that we still do not fully understand the implications. Now, some might never get to the strong position, despite the fact that the strong position is the right one. And the proper response by the strong, according to Paul, was to love the weak as God loved us, even though we were weak, to not despise them for their weakness, for their wrongness, just as we would not have wanted to be despised when we had not yet arrived where we are now. I want to be clear here. When we say these issues are non-essentials, we don't mean they are unimportant or that we should just agree to disagree because both sides are equally acceptable. They are non-essential in the sense that people can be part of the family of God and get this wrong. That people can legitimately be trying to follow Jesus, but not fully understand the proper perspective on these issues. Again, many of us were in exactly that position in earlier seasons of our own lives. That's an important distinction, I think, to keep in mind. Non-essential, not unimportant or ambiguous. Now, but wait, we might still be thinking, Paul, these are core identity issues that we're talking about. Whether women can be fully human whether the LGBTQ community can fully follow Jesus. These aren't little side debates about irrelevant things. These are core to who people are. And the ones who condemn them are questioning their core identities and hurting them because of it. And this passage says, yes, that's what was going on with the question of eating meat and celebrating Sabbath too. Those we have to remind ourselves at our cultural distance were just as core identity issues for the Jewish Christian as gender and sexual orientation are today. They are on the same level of importance and were just as likely to cause harm. And Paul still saw unity in Jesus as the more important goal. I think the lesson we need to hear 
in this passage, which, as I said, goes on for more than a chapter, which shows how difficult and important Paul saw it as being for the Roman church, the lesson we need to hear is not that we should compromise on these core issues. Paul was right that food laws and Jewish holidays no longer held the importance that they once had, and in fact were potentially damaging to the unity of a Jew and Gentile together family. We are right that the implications of the good news mean that anyone who is committed to following Jesus should be allowed to do so fully. The lesson we need to hear is that the implications of the gospel also mean that we can't despise those who disagree with us just because they are wrong. We still disagree. We hold to what we know to be true, and we lovingly bear with them as they are still on a journey to understand who Jesus is more fully. Okay, but now what does that mean? to lovingly bear with them. There are those of us who might be called by God to try and convince those who don't agree with us, like Meredith did for me back in Greek class. But I think that it's instructive that that story was a part of a respectful mutual relationship that included respectful mutual dialogue. It's important also that we hear verse one again, welcome someone who is weak in faith, but not in order to have disputes on difficult points. There've been endless disputes on these difficult points. Some of us have been in those disputes and are tired of those disputes. It isn't our job to go on arguing about it. We may be called to lay out our perspective when it's appropriate, but otherwise we get on with following Jesus, doing it alongside those who disagree with us, who are wrong, but who are also trying to follow Jesus as best they can. And sometimes doing it alongside actually means at a distance. (laughs) We might find a community that is affirming, like Pomona Valley Church, because we are tired of the disputes, not because we despise or condemn other Christians who disagree, but because we just want to get on with following Jesus and do it in a place that we're not going to be condemned or argued with. This brings us back to those who are operating in bad faith that I mentioned earlier. This passage is not saying that we should just put up with and take their abuse. Those so weak in their faith that they show no interest in following Paul's command for the weak not to condemn the strong, it's not our job to deal with them. It takes two to continue a dispute on difficult points, of course. And I think it's not just entirely appropriate, but the right thing to do to opt out of that sort of thing in most cases. It was just a couple chapters ago that Paul told the Romans that they should aim that if it's possible, as far as you can live at peace with all people. Sometimes it isn't possible, but that's on them, not on us. We don't despise. If they condemn, that is their business, not ours. I find this challenging. That may have come through in the sermon. I find this one of the harder of Paul's words in Romans. But I think that that's because for the most part, the people who come to mind for me on the other side are the ones who aren't acting in good faith, who are looking for a fight and who don't care who they hurt. Our culture is in a despise and condemn those who disagree with you sort of place right now. Not just in the church, but everywhere, it seems. And that both means the harm done by the non-affirming and anti-woman factions of the church, it can seem magnified sometimes. And that it's really easy to slip into that sort of stance in response, in confrontation to their perspective. But Jesus invites us to walk a different path. One not of submitting to abuse or endless disputes, but one of love as we get on with the good work of following Jesus. Recognizing that as many jerks as there are out there, there are also well-meaning people who are, in Paul's words, 
weak in faith, who are still on the journey of understanding what Jesus's radical love for all genders and sexual orientations means in practice, and who, given time and grace, might just change their minds.